0: Michael Gove famously said around Brexit, the public have had enough of experts. We certainly heard it after that during COVID. You know, these experts are brainy and clever and they're trying to like ruin our lives with all of their kind of input into these policy things. And it's, yeah, people just want to live their lives and they want to do it kind of informed by science, but also kind of not if it's not allowing them to do what they want to do. So we need to work in an open way so that people and the public and fellow scientists have transparency and belief in what we're doing, that it's being done in an ethical, safe and rigorous way. So transparency replaces just trust.
1: Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. This season, we're speaking to a wide variety of folks to investigate all things open science. In our previous episodes, we've explored tactics and methods for increasing access in the open science movement. Some researchers are working to provide resources, like open education materials, to ensure people can join open-source communities. Others are embracing data sovereignty principles to ensure underrepresented communities are not exploited when participating in open science. Most of these actions have only increased access for fellow scientists— But one area we also need to be focusing on is making science accessible to the general public. This includes making them aware that open science exists. In today's episode, we'll be exploring two tools that, when combined, can improve public trust in science. Science communication and the FAIR principles. So get ready to add to your arsenal of open science tools because this is going to be a beefy episode. This episode of Down to Earth is brought to you by the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The GRSS is a community of passionate researchers and practitioners who are working to benefit society through their science, engineering, education, and applications. This year, GRSS is excited to collaborate with the NASA Transform to Open Science Initiative to celebrate the year of open science with a whole down-to-earth season devoted to this very topic. To learn more and get involved in the year-long events and celebrations, visit science.nasa.gov and search for Open Science.
0: I think Brian Nosek at Open Science Foundation said that, you know, if we're we're transparent and we're open, people don't just need to trust us. The scientists told us this, they can actually see it for themselves. And likewise for our fellow scientists as well, we we can get a look under the hood and, and see how things are being done. So I think they're just such foundational requirements for science to be at its best and to and provide as, as best as it can for wider society that it's, it's a non-negotiable, really.
1: This is Professor Christopher Jackson. He's the Director of Sustainable Geosciences at a company called Jacobs and the Visiting Professor of Basin Analysis at Imperial College in London, UK. For several years now, he's also been a regular face and voice on the BBC in the UK, Through this work,
2: he makes science much more accessible to non-scientists. I would love to see open and fair practices that enable cross-field and cross-disciplinary interactions. I would love to see us more on board. I would love to see more dedication to resources to to making that happen. And that's both on the human infrastructure, and I mean data stewards and data managers and, and research support staff and on the technological infrastructures as well, and seeing researchers being appropriately merited and getting the proper accreditation for doing open and fair research.
1: And this is Dr. Sarah L. Gubali. She's a project leader for metadata and curation at the Life Lab in Sweden. She's also the co-founder of Fair Points, a platform that supports conversation around realistic and pragmatic use of the fair principles in science. Through different approaches, both scientists are working to break down barriers so there is more transparency and understanding in open science for both scientists and the general public. Let's learn more.
0: We have a problem. We get some data. We go away in the dark room, myself or a number of people, we, we come out with something we solve something or we work on something and then it is presented at a conference where it comes out in a paper but the bit what happens in the dark room isn't particularly visible to the broader public or the broader scientific community and neither is the peer review process let's say of the journal publication so i think that is the transparency issue we're trying to combat is the fact that it's conducted in often a very siloed way in isolation yet the impact of the work we do might then be global, of course. And and yet, you know, the line of sight on how that was done is is, is just not there for for everybody. So that's what I mean about transparency is is understanding the actual scientific process, which underpins something when it reaches the public.
1: Yeah. Transparency is definitely one of many issues preventing the public from understanding the scientific process. But Chris, I want to talk about solutions here. What's the solution? (laughs)
0: I've left, so I can't fix it. Good luck. <laughs> Honestly, Stephanie. My name is Chris. I'm just here to introduce problems, not to fix them.
1: But seriously, what about science communications, Chris? Because I personally believe that science communications can be a solution for building up the public trust in science. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think having science communication as being a valued tool or a valued art almost, or, or it's, an, it's an integral part of the scientific process would really help. Because, you know, let's take COVID, for example, right? You know, the best bits of the COVID response wouldn't have got anywhere unless we had good science communicators. So people who were making the science open as they went through and were communicating about what they're doing. If we didn't have scientists who were engaging directly with policymakers and and governmental bodies and sort of advising them and people who could obviously then translate it enough to make a policy from it to get all the way from the lab bench all the way through to letting you out your house or keeping you in your house, (laughs) You know, science communication played a really important role through all of all of what's happened to us in the last two and a half years. I think as well, science communication is is desperately important when it comes to things like climate change. So some of the big societal challenges we've got coming our way in the next few decades, if we've got that long, you know, we need people who can talk to the broader public and and make the science understandable and, and really you know, reassure them at some level, but also make it really clear what the problem is and why it exists. So you need science communicators who are very able to be compelling. And I think we need science communicators not just on telly or podcasts or radio. We need science communicators at the dinner table. We need science communicators in the bar. We need science communicators in cafes. We need people if they're equipping themselves with scientific knowledge to be talking to their friends and family and colleagues about it, you know, we, need, we, we can't rely on a handful of people in, who are very public-facing to do all of the labour. It needs to be done at every single opportunity we have.
1: I mean, science is everywhere, so science communicators should be everywhere, right? Personally, for you, how, how are you personally using your communications expertise to push for change?
0: Um, I mean, one thing we tried to do at um, a couple of places I worked was to try and make sure that science communication was valued in the promotions criteria and in appointments criteria, right? So I've tried to do that. I've I've tried to as well, you know, <laughs> tell people that nobody's really born a science communicator, you know. There's, and in fact, there's not really special skills in it. I think the only skill that I would say is really valuable is being able to take complicated things and retain the relevant level of detail and accuracy but also make it understandable
1: Mm -hmm. well you've done science communication television and podcasts right um lots of scientists are probably nervous about the idea of talking about their science in these mediums but how about you what have you learned about this experience
0: number one i'll be honest i find it incredibly stressful i mean the tv media thing i find i did some filming last week and i just get unreasonably nervous and i've done it for about 5 6 years now and it's never got better you're representing your a bit of your science a few of your colleagues who, and then you go and make, make a mess of it you know you don't you don't want to do that so i think that anxiety is 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 useful and it, and it means that i care about what i'm doing um The other thing I've kind of learned to think about, not necessarily podcasts, but again, TV, is um, (laughs) how we're lucky to get any science on TV, right? (laughs) I think think the the amount of like false starts there are around scientific programming is one thing. You know, there's lots of ideas which never sort of make it anywhere. And then the, the other kind of curiosity, and this is really important, I think, if people are interested in science communication, producers universally think that if you are a geologist you know about everything to do with geology so they're going to ask you about the skull of a t-rex they'll ask you about the water depth in the pacific 100 million years ago and they're also going to ask you about sandstones on mars and they'll be like oh can you just explain all these things to us and you kind of and it's at that point you realize how you know, these people are often with science, these producers have a scientific training, right? They've got a scientific background, but they're like, oh, you don't know about this? It's like, no, because, you know, geoscience, what I work in and in chemistry, biology, whatever it might be, they're hyper-specialized. And so clearly, I think the general public, you know, they just assume scientists know everything. And, and so as a science communicator, I think then it's really important to be clear about what you do and don't know. And when you are explaining something to the general public, and it's not your area of expertise, and the likelihood is it isn't, it's to make it clear that that's the case, to take them on that journey of discovery with you. And I think that adds some believability and authenticity to what you're trying to do. You don't just walk on stage and go, well, today I'm going to talk about COVID-19 vaccines. Because some people would do that, but it actually doesn't help actually in the long run of convincing people that scientists know what they're doing.
1: Yes, and being able to say where your expertise is and where it isn't. I love that. Being able to say I don't know is is a big thing. It's hard key. to do
0: that, right? Yeah, it's super it hard is. to do that. Because again, the circles we often move in, uncertainty is a weakness or, or you know True. or you know, and it's and it's and, and it's a thing I keep reminding myself and I talk to students who I work with about. It's it's you know, we're always learning and, and I think when people see you on stage and you don't know the answer to a question because it is outside of your expertise or you've not thought about it, I think, again, it gives the public a little bit of a window of insight into what the true experience is of being a scientist is that you are continually trying to work things out. There are things you don't know. Tomorrow you might know them. It's not like you turn up at the age of 25 or 30 with a bundle of knowledge and it's fixed. Forever, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's something that evolves. You forget things and you gain things, and 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 I think that's exciting. But it is quite um exposing to do it.
1: I think it also comes with the fact that we've always defined science as a body of knowledge. It looks like it's definite, you know, th- this sort of definition <laughs> that it's a body of knowledge when <laughs> it's actually a gradual increase of our knowledge from observations, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But again. I don't think the media help where it says scientists say is the classic sentence is <laughs> scientists say that a glass of red wine per day means you'll live to 105. But then the next day it's like scientists say a glass of red wine means you'll die by Tuesday. You know, like there's these absolutisms that are kind of made and they're made from a group of people who are kind of alien to the public, but are also then revered by the public as being like what they say must be true. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So we're in this real mess where, people have a very fixed view about what a scientist is and, and and who a scientist isn't. You know, every time I do things like this, I learn something more, you know, I kind of I'm forced to think about, you know, why we do what we do and how we do it and how other people think about it. You know, because I'd never want to think that all or any of the expertise resides with me. It resides with all of us as a community. And therefore, in these sorts of conversations, there's an opportunity as well to learn about things you'd not previously thought about, and then you're better equipped to have a conversation sometime in the future.
2: A lot of this work is to to really enable researchers and other people involved in research to make the most out of what's publicly available out of the data that we produce, not only by encouraging them to make it open, but also to make it reusable. Up next,
1: we'll dig into another tool scientists can use to help make their research more open and accessible to the public, the FAIR principles. So stay tuned.
2: Are you a student or recent grad ready to reach your full potential in the geosciences? Then you need to join the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society.
1: With over 75 chapters in 94 different countries, you'll connect with a diverse community of professionals, experts and advisors who can inspire your science and help shape your career. Find support and fellowship as part of our Young Professionals Network. Advance your skills through our GRSS schools, student travel grants, workshops and more. Be at the forefront of geoscience research by joining our technical committees and network with geoscientists from around the world at IGARS, our flagship conference. Our incredible international community is ready to welcome you. Learn more and get connected today by visiting grss-ieee.org. Welcome back. For today's episode, we are speaking to two researchers about ways we can make open science more accessible. With Professor Christopher Jackson, we cover the importance of science communications for reaching public audiences. Where Chris helps prime the public to understand the scientific process, Dr. Sarah Al-Ghibali ensures they can access and use scientific data. She does this in two key ways. The first is through data stewardship, something we already heard a bit about when we spoke with Monica and Grazielli in episode 2. The second way she helps make science more accessible is through her work with FairPoints, which is a platform and community that supports education around making science findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. Let's learn more.
2: Data curation didn't really exist back in the day when I did my PhD, but it was wet lab, cancer research, and started working on multiplexing techniques and high throughput techniques from multiple different experiment types. And I was overwhelmed with the amount of data, which I have to say, it is not anywhere close to data nowadays. And even then, it was a challenge to how do I start looking at this data? What do I do with that? How do people manage this, right? And this is like, one of the biggest questions that the whole basis of research data management is built on, what do you do with all of this data and how do you handle it and what happens after you leave and who takes care of this data? And even if you publish it, is it understandable for others? Is it of use to others or is it just like supplementary material that people forget about? <laughs> and and um, I'm lucky to be in this group where we're just building all the infrastructure to help researchers on a national level with their data and to really enable data-driven scientific research. Um, in 2016, like the concepts of fair or findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable came about. But we are kind of struggling to see the ways of how do we apply those principles in reality and that's where it sent me out on a quest on on kind of what are people doing and ended up founding Fairpoints as a platform together with a couple of brilliant people Chris Erdman and Donnie Winston to kind of embark on this journey to Go and question people, like, how do you apply this concept of FAIR in your daily work? What can we learn from you from different disciplines? So it's been it's been really amazing. It's very interesting to see the responses. Before we get into
1: FAIR points, most scientists don't speak so enthusiastically about data management. Why do you think this is the
2: case? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I, I think there's so many reasons why researchers struggle with, with data management and I understand that. I totally get it because we're asking them to do everything. We're asking them to be experts in how to organize their data, how to handle licenses, how to handle intellectual properties, in formatting, in you know, and everything that is required for like the highest levels of data management. And this is hard. That's the reason why we have a whole career out of it in data stewardship, and we have folks dedicated to that to help the researchers. So I think the point here is not trying to you know, put burden on researchers because that's what they see. They see it as a burden, and it's a time sink, and they have to educate themselves on everything, but we're not trying to do that, right? So we should be supporting them by having the specialists do that part and work alongside them. So I think this is where the disconnect is missing and where most of the issues lie. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense.
1: As scientists, we're expected to know everything, and it's just too much. But data management is crucial to good open science, right? So what are some of the data
2: stewardship elements that support fair practices? So the FAIR principles stand for findable, accessible, interoperable, and reusable. And they put emphasis on the ability of machines to find and act on that data. So metadata is one of the biggest biggest elements required for FAIR practices, but at the same time, it's one of the biggest hurdles. Metadata allows us to contextualize the data and different research outputs as well. So we're not just talking about data. And at the same time, we need to have an agreement between ourselves within each field and each discipline is... When I say X, do you also understand it as X or do you understand it as something different, right? And is this list of, of descriptions or list of metadata, is this enough to give you an appropriate picture of what to describe the object itself, like the research, whether it's data set or software or whatever? And having that community engagement is required to come with the with the definitions and, and agreements. And yeah, so this this is one of the biggest elements that are part of the data stewardship duties, you can say, but it also very much depending on the researchers and the community of researchers.
1: So how does all this, the FAIR principles and data stewardship, tie into open science?
2: Yeah, um... With open science, we've been encouraging people to to share, right? Just go out there, tell the world what you're working on, what's happening. But sharing data alone is does not necessitate that it's in a good shape. Uh, it does not tell me anything if I have a data set, which I don't know how it was produced, what are the abbreviations stand for, um, who to contact, and whether or not I can use it and what kind of licensing, you know, on it. Like there's so much more to just having the data. And to ensure that it is of value, you need to be looking at how reusable is it, like its quality and, and so on. And to be honest, First of all, you have to find it. I can have open data, like put on an Fttp server, and that's not exactly findable because if I search Google, basically I will not find the data. So openness is not just putting it up there in personal website as well, but it has a fixed home online. So fair go and, and open go kind of hand in hand because we... We realize that it's not just about openness. There are other elements. First is fair. Is the other is to go beyond uh, thinking about the quality and to take into consideration the ethics of that open data, whether it should be open or not. And that's where fair complements open because fair is not open. Fair is more open as possible and as close as necessary. So openness per se does not necessarily that it should be open.
1: Yes, very true. So in many ways, FAIR provides us with structure or guidance for when to make data open. And if we've decided it's ethical to do so, FAIR helps us figure out how to make it open. But part of the reason you started FAIR Points is because researchers are struggling with the FAIR principles, right? So tell me more about FAIR Points and what you're doing to help researchers. So
2: me, Chris, and Donnie were thinking about how do you talk to people or train people about the FAIR principles. And and we realized that the problem of approaching researchers with the FAIR principles is that they want to have fixes, they want to have solutions, but we don't know the solutions and we don't know what, what to offer. So what is the way of propagating pragmatic FAIR fair solutions, right? And we decided to go out there and talk to people who are doing fair and interview them have them come talk to our community so we have people from all of STEM and also from social sciences from arts from you know varied disciplines to come together to talk about their experiences sharing knowledge and finding common activities that we would like to work on and what resulted from these conversations So, for instance, we're currently working on developing training material for high school and undergraduate students that teachers can use to talk about open and fair in a non-complicated, less jargon way. And that's to introduce the concepts early on. We also create Q&As that are rendered by Google search to say, um, okay, here's the question and there's the answers from like experts in the field and they are ranked according you know to voting and they're called like google educational flashcards it's such a cool concept it's very new it's been recently launched and basically you use structured data to document the questions and answers that we collect from the community and then how google displays them is in the format of like small educational cards and that allows anyone who's interested to kind of find out more, but in a very low threshold, more accessible manner.
1: The Google cards sound like a really neat project. So what types of challenges
2: are popping up in the cards so far? Some of the biggest questions that came up is, and I keep hearing this over and over again, and it really is a big question in terms of open science is that can somebody scoop me with my data open? How do I get credit for my work? Is open data free data? And is open science a new trend as well? There's so many questions that came out from the... These are community questions. Like these questions came from uh, people attending our events and contributing some of the questions that are in their head or they have been asked before. That's interesting
1: because they're focusing on open data questions as opposed to FAIR.
2: What do you think about this? I think because it's it's um, when we're talking about fear, you don't really have to share openly, but you know you could be fair between you and your colleague in the same lab. Just make it in a, in a good shape. While open, we're asking them to put it out there for the rest of the world to see. So there are different kind of anxieties attached to it. What are some of the community responses to these fears? so one of the questions that i mentioned is how do i get credit for my work right and people are advocating by saying there are mechanisms to address that so you you can provide a suggested citation or attribution, and this is a cornerstone of ethical research, Um, assigning licenses that requires attribution, that's another way. So you see that we cannot just ignore those fears because they exist, but we have to provide solutions and to address them, right? Here's another example of a question. What are the drawbacks of open science? And I love this because we cannot just sell one version without addressing the fears, right? again, we're changing cultures and and attitudes. We have to be mindful of these fears and they exist for a reason as well. So what are the drawbacks of open science? And the answer I'm reading here is like, without safeguards, both social and technical, researchers are understandably worried at not being able to capture some of the value they have produced. But the patent system was designed to help with this for industrial progress. So... There are drawbacks, but there should be safeguards in place to mitigate them. So we're not really saying, yeah, you should, you know, (laughs) you should do open at all costs. Again, that's not the point. It's more about open, but being mindful, open, but making use of the available technologies to help with the proper openness. I think these Google
1: cards really demonstrate some of the community feelings about open science. It's a direct feeling, you know. I think when people first learn about open science, they think about it as this really positive mission. But then the questions start to pop up. You know, we've been addressing a bunch of these questions in the podcast this season because it's so important to talk these things through before we move forward. So I'm curious, in your view is open science this magical unicorn i know it's a tough question it's a big <laughs> one <laughs>
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's a, it's a really it's a really tough question to ask because but you've asked me in my view and my view might not be exactly the same view that is held by most western uh, high income countries views I grew up in, in in Sweden, but my origins are are from Egypt. So I have the North African perspective on things, where open science means exploitation, open science means no rights, open science means helicopter research, safari or parachute research. It means a lot of negative connotations. So if I'm gonna, you know, take a step back and say there is no magic bullet to solve all problems that we're facing in science we have to be mindful of who's talking about open science who's on that table and who's not there so the version of open science depending on who you talk to is is going to be um Different. Quite different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I just got emotional there.
1: because No no uh, worries. I mean, I I love this because you make an excellent point here. You know, I mean, as the Western countries and developed countries move forward to open science freely, the countries who are, I would say, still trying to be open, I mean, trying to adapt to open science, are still, I wouldn't say struggling, but they're still trying to be careful on their next step to open science because they don't want that same experience all over again as what was has happened before, right?
2: Yeah, and you're 100% right and this like we have to take into account open science and history of colonialism. We have to take into account what the repercussions of those practices as well. And we've seen this with covid research when we were pressuring African countries to share their data without any regard and involvement in the discussions. So, we have to kind of start thinking about the same thing for FAIR or for any other concept or our solutions that we come up with. How is this adapted and how do we win the goodwill and good faith of the communities that we've alienated with negative practices and in? histories of decades of colonialism so yeah so if you had to have one key message to share with listeners what would it be yeah totally um i'm not i'm not talking against openness absolutely not but i'm trying to say that when when we're talking about openness we have to also talk about fair and care principles right like open data goes hand in hand with the fair and care principles and we're talking about collective benefit authority to control responsibility and ethics Uh and that's where we have to ask ourselves is what is the value of openness um is there a value of openness to in this instance or in this situation or not In the field of
1: remote sensing, earth observation, and data analysis, the FAIR principles have been constantly emphasized to us students as important for managing our data. Combined with the CARE principles, our research in data becomes even more valuable because it serves community needs. The way we communicate science in general should complement these principles. Yet, science communication is still a skill not every scientist is comfortable with. The fact that journalists and the general public sometimes expect scientists to know information beyond their expertise makes participating in science communication even more daunting. But we need more scientists to talk about their research in a way that the public can understand and trust. That's not an easy task, but with training and encouragement, I think it's possible. The next step is to find the ever-elusive funding to support this work. In fact, Funding is a key question for the whole of open science. So next episode, we'll speak to a researcher investigating diverse funding models for open science. Learn more about Chris and his work.
0: I am active on twitter.com and my handle is at size matters, but it's size S E I S underscore matters. And um, also on Instagram at Christopher.Aidan.Lee.Jackson.
2: And be sure to connect with Sarah too. You can look me up at slgibali on Twitter or on Mastodon. We also have fairpoints.org and scilifelab.se slash data.
1: Please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and send some love to our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Yvonne Ivy Parker and Keeley Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomompos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.